You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 55. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to The Local Maximum. This is the last episode in February, people. We are getting through this winter. Uh, We're getting through this winter pretty uh, pretty quickly. Um, So I like that, Uh, you know. I'm looking forward to for warmer weather. I don't know about you. Um, you are about to hear my conversation with David Auerbach, the author of Bitwise, A Life in Code. Now, I don't want to give away too much about the conversation, but I know that you're all interested in how algorithms affect our daily lives, and David has a lot of fascinating anecdotes in this interview and in this book. And in the end, I'm going to... He, he, we're going to talk a little bit about the like Microsoft AOL wars, which I think is uh, is just so fascinating as part of the book. Um, so I don't want to uh, take up too much of your time. I want to get right into it. David Auerbach is a writer and software engineer. He previously worked for Google and Microsoft. His writing has appeared in many places, including the MIT Technology Review and New Scientist, um, and many more places than that. You can go on his website. I just picked those two because... I think I was mentioned in the New Scientist once, and and sometimes I read the MIT Technology Review. There are tons more that I read. Uh, he was also authored. Uh, he also authored the technology column in Slate, and has lectured around the world on technology, literature, and philosophy. Let's bring it up, David Auerbach. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Local Maximum. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks Max. for yeah. Thanks for coming on the show today. Coming to my new location, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Um, so I brought you on today to talk about your new book, Bitwise, A Life in Code. I saw it described on Amazon as a book about how algorithms shaped our world, and I sort of got into it. I was flipping through the books at Barnes & Noble. And by the way, I almost never buy a book at Barnes & Noble. Like, I want to. I want to support them because I feel like there needs to be some parity between them and Amazon for some reason. I don't know why I feel this, but anyway. But uh, <laughs> but then I never end up doing it. But uh I was like looking at it and I, I was drawn by the cover and I, I kind of flipped through it and I saw like the pictures and diagrams and I was like, oh look, there's logo and there's circuits and there's, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's enums. I like, I like writing enums. Um, and we're gonna talk about enums today and emojis. And I saw it was about software engineering, so I thought I'd pick it up. And I got a little bit of, uh, of history. I saw some um, software war stories, some life stories. So I wanna get it straight from the author. How do you describe this book to people when they ask you what it's about? Well, I tell them that it, it, you, you say like how software algorithms influence the world, and I would say it definitely is about that, and vice versa, how the world is influencing software algorithms. It's, um, the, as a person who has had one feet planted in computer science and software engineering, and the other foot planted in what one might call the airier world of literature, philosophy, whatever. Um, the book is is not only about how I drew those two things together, but how those two things have come together over the last 20, 30 years. You know, I grew up... Right, so it's a long view. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I'm old now. <laughs> I, grew, I grew up in well, the 1980s. I programmed in Logo on an Apple IIe. And at that time, computers were very removed from the world. We didn't think about computers as part of our everyday lives, unless you were a little nerd kid like me. Now, of course, they're everywhere. And so, in some ways, I felt that the course of my life had paralleled um, what had happened to computers over that period. And so, by telling the story of my time at Microsoft and Google, as well as my other interests, and trying to look at how I reconciled that with uh, some of my more humanitarian humanities interests. I hope to explain how that reflects on how algorithms are shaping the world today. So can you give me an example of how, say, computers were like disconnected maybe 20, 30 years ago in a way that they're connected to the real world now? Like there's there's more of a correspondence. Yeah, well, I think, I, I mean... If you just look at the amount of data, computers weren't capable of, of representing and storing the entirety of the world. 
in last century, and now they are, more or less, well, <laughs> conditionally. Yeah. But I, there's a statistic I like to quote, which is that we now produce more computable data every day than was produced in the entirety of the history of the world prior to the year 2000. And that's, that's crazy, because 2000 was not, I, I think of 2000 as, oh, we already had broadband and internet yeah. and, you know, know, and Google and... The 2000 is not that long ago. That's, that's Moore's law. I mean, I, yeah. fundamentally, it's Moore's law, and it's Moore's law's impact that you have had the doubling of you know, storage capacity and computing capacity every, whatever, 18 to 24 months. And that gets you, that gets you the ability to store, to vacuum up everything that is computable and to increasingly generate more of everything. And as we've... There's been a feedback process in that as we do more and more online, we generate more data, which can then be computed and then generate more data and this huge cascade of just data everywhere and us not knowing quite what to do with all of it. Yeah, uh, well, this reminds me, and I didn't think of this beforehand about, because uh, I think yesterday on Twitter, uh, Dennis Crowley, who's been on the show, he's, he founded Foursquare, he... He was at Google back when I was there. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. He retweeted... Uh, I remember when we bought them. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, dodgeball. Dodgeball, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Were, were you involved in that at all? Or you just remember no. the news? Nope. Yeah. I just, I, I, well, Google knew you. I remember the of... news reading from, as like a, you know, as a recent grad, not knowing I'd ever be connected without that. I was pretty young then, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I joined Google not too long before that. But Google New York was, I mean, how many people? There's like thousands now. There was literally maybe 100 or 200 people. So it was small. So anything like that was was news. You knew it when it happened. So yeah. when Dodgeball was acquired, everybody knew that this was going on. It was like you would see everybody around the office. Yeah. So so he retweeted something, uh, an article the other day, and I have to look at what the exact, what the author was. But it was, uh, but he's he's excited about it. I know uh, Foursquare is doing some augmented reality stuff about this idea of like a a phantom Earth, like. It'll be like a Google Earth that you can walk around in, but you know there are certain additional uh, additional features added in. I don't know if like arrows or pointers or yeah. whatever, kind of like a gaming Phantom Earth. And I that's been in fiction and gaming for a long time. I mean, I remember a few years ago, you know, trying out a game where I was like, oh, I'm just walking around in Brooklyn. This is this is weird. Uh, but like, why don't I just go downstairs and do this? Uh, but um, but that kind of remind reminded me of what you said because it's like okay. Now we have a representation, a map representation of the world that's like one-to-one, -one, not just like, you know, oh, this town is here, that town is here, but like, no, you just walk by the coffee shop, you could see the individual uh, chairs, the individual uh, pieces of silverware that are in the restaurant as you walk by, all just stored. So anyway, that's, that's crazy. Um, so when, when did you decide to write this book, and what was the... What kind of inspired you to do to do it? So I, I uh, after I decided to sort of leave full-time software engineering to focus more on writing, I was writing you know, smaller pieces for, for many years. I wrote uh, the technology column for Slate for a couple of years and had pieces in various other, various other places. And um, I felt like I wanted to, that there was common base of knowledge that I was trying to sort of imparting or referring to in every piece and I wanted gotcha. to write a more sort of comprehensive look to help uh, non-technical people at least think computationally about okay this is what a computer is doing when it's processing the world because just looking at it as a black box it can be very mysterious as far as like well how does Facebook actually figure something out um, and I also wanted to write this in a way that it would not be boring to people who did know about computers. And that was why, if you, if you look at the cover, um, actually, I, I had them put the actual bitwise operate, some bitwise operators from C uh, in it so yeah. that people would say, oh, okay, wow, whoever, whoever wrote this actually has some idea of actually how to code. <laughs> that that uh, could have been one of the things that, uh, that, that, that caught my eye at Barnes & Noble. Uh, to be honest, uh, <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I've got the that, you know I got X or equals on the cover. Yeah, so. yeah, you wouldn't think that it would that it would catch someone's eye, but I guess it did. I hope so. Um, I hope I hope it would. I don't know. Yeah. 
Um, so did you write this while you were working at a software company or did you take time off to finish the book? And before you answer, I just want to ask because I'm very interested, obviously personally, but I think a lot of, a lot of programmers or software engineers are interested in doing creative side projects. And I've, I've asked people about this on the show before and sometimes, sometimes people find it very hard to do while they're, you know, have a full-time engineering job. Yeah, yeah no, no. I, I'd, st- I'd stopped working full-time uh, as an engineer uh, sometime before that. I was working as, I was working, I had the columnist job then, so I had that interfering with it. Uh, gotcha. But, um, but uh, I, I got a fellowship as well from, from New America that gave me some, some latitude to work on it. And yeah, I think it is, it is difficult to balance it. I know people who have done it, um, but uh, it's definitely a different mental space. And I think this is something I get into in the book is that there are, that thinking in the, whatever one might call the analytic mindset, the engineering mindset that's required for programming, is uh, a different mental orientation than thinking, even writing in a technical sense. I mean, I suppose if you're writing a textbook, yeah. it could be similar, but if you're, write, if you're doing any sort of lateral thinking, any sort of uh, creative writing, it requires, I think, a different set of what one might call um, uh, mental valences and it can be hard to switch back and forth between that. I've known people who can do it but it's interesting because even then I find that their writing tends to be more um, uh, schematic that, that, that in some schematic. words what yes that, that, that their writing in some ways reads more like code oh interesting. <laughs> there's, a, interesting there's a novelist who is somewhat popular among software so engineers. maybe more like a textbook or even not like a textbook, but just less narrative and more like an outline. Like, okay. uh, you know, that, that I'm going to present these things to you in a very orderly way, and I'm not going to sort of start off with anecdotes. I'm going to be very top-down about it. Gotcha. Uh, there, there's, an, there's an author, Richard Powers. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Galatea 2.2. And his, his work, I think, in some ways is, is very... I, to the best of my knowledge, he's not a programmer, but... He's popular among some programmers, and I think his work reads as though it reads closer to sort of how code is structured than a lot of a lot of uh, fiction writers. So, and it's difficult to nail down exactly why that is, but there, you know, even if you look at, as you know, science fiction is very popular among uh, <laughs> in yeah. nerd culture. Sure, and I think that there are similarities to there too in terms of how ideas are presented and a de-emphasis of, say, character and personality nuance. Uh, and I get into this in the book too, in terms of you know how schematic methods are applied sometimes in literature. And uh, one of the stories I tell is how Don Knuth, uh, the godfather of algorithms. Uh, was actually consulted by this French author to get a uh, 10 by 10 Greco-Roman square for a work he was writing uh, because he couldn't compute one by hand and Knuth actually produced them by computers and this was in 1965 or something and sent sent them to the author. And I think that that was a great anecdote because it's Knuth of all people who would later go on to great fame uh, with his algorithms book and he actually selected this book. It was by Georges Perec called Life, a User's Manual. as I think his favorite novel of the 20th century. Cool. So one thing that comes up a lot in Bitwise that I noticed is the idea of uh, categorizations. So we're always dealing with taxonomies. I said enums before. Basically, uh, we code that uh, there are exactly and distinct things a variable can be. I'm just doing this for the listeners. I'm not explaining to you. <laughs> but cool. like, once you're in New York City, there's probably an enum of like the five boroughs, I'm sure, in the city data system somewhere as to which of the five boroughs you can live in. And we see it in Bitwise, um, if I could just remember a few of the things from the books, uh, you know, when it came to category, categorizing um, illnesses, or was it actually, was it um, 
Uh, it was I cover uh, the, the the mental illness taxonomy. Mental of the, illness taxonomies. Of the DSM right. of the DSM five. Right. Yeah. Okay. And there were gaming outcomes in Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. I covered Dungeons and Dragons and and Dwarf Fortress for yes. the sort of logical extreme of that. <laughs> okay. And there was Myers Briggs, which is yep. the sixteen different personality types. But of yep. course, that's for binary selections. Which right. I took a different. Um, personality assessment on last week's show, and somebody gave me a um, gave me my results in real time. So that was fun. What was it? What was um, it? It was. Oh God! I I'm am, just kidding. sorry. I'm yeah, curious. Yeah, no, I, I have to. I, I like seeing which ones are catching on. I had a friend who was just given a Myers Briggs test by the company who employed her, and actually, you know, they actually they idea. actually determine people's fates based on this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I actually I liked this a lot better, but let me see if I can get the actual. PI. Is it one of the big five personality? The predictive index? Predictive. Can I see? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, oh, interesting. I don't know this one. It looks it looks like it's Myers-Briggs derived just because there's the four axes. Uh, uh, it's actually an old one. She said it was, it was um, developed in the 1950s. That would be post-Myers-Briggs. Oh, maybe. I wonder yeah. if okay, it's related. So yeah. Dominance, extroversion, it was, patience, and formality. You're very extroverted, apparently, man. I, I, I thought that, I actually said that at the end of the show, that was the one that I thought was actually a little bit, a little bit off. Which but you're not, I, you're very informal to <laughs> Very informal, you're yeah. You're very informal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, some of it, some of it was spot on. Um, but um, I, yeah, so that, that was a fun one, but again, Right, same type of framework, and uh, and those are those are always very interesting. Uh, we could talk more about those. Um, so, my first takeaway from these examples is that like all of these kind of enums that we fit everyone into are maybe inexact but necessary, and we need to be aware of their limitations. But I feel like there was there was more than that that you were trying to convey. So, what else do you want to convey about how computers kind of fit the world into their data structures? That I think that that as computers have become ubiquitous, and I think they are ubiquitous, there's certain categorizations that almost by accident become very dominant. And there's a danger, and, and I think that the risk is that they become so ever-present that we start, that they, they take on a very strong reality on the order of, you know, look at, you know, there are a hundred something nations in, in the world. Uh, I think it's a hundred something, maybe it's 200 something. And you know, th are those nations real? They aren't real in sort of the metaphysical sense, but they, it's, it's a very concrete tax, taxonomy division of the world that we all respect, but, at but it's explicit. Whereas, you know, you can go on Facebook and see uh, what Various categories have been assigned to you by advertisers. It's not easy to see, but you can find. Sure. It. No, I've been and, there, and, and, and and I've been on the side of computing those for uh, for Foursquare too. So and, yeah, <laughs> and you know, um, the other year, uh, Facebook, Facebook Facebook currently thinks I'm African American. Right. Uh, sorry, I, they think I have a African American ethnic affinity. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, that might not be actually so um, so bad for those of us who live in New York. I, well, it's just that... It's, I, it's not unexpected. It's just a question of, in terms of, well, two years ago they thought I had Asian-American ethnic affinity. Yeah. So, and I think the thing is that these, these classifications are being done you know, without our even necessarily knowing them, and the criteria can be either very simple or they can be very hazy with you know, machine learning becoming more dominant. You know, you may not even be yeah. able to say, okay, why am I in this? And you say, well, these weights were weighted this, and you ended up like this, but you know that node it was like that, and yeah, there's no there's no definitive explanation for how you got it. So if you disagree with one, there's not necessarily a fact of the matter. So I think, um, yeah, and one can say, well, when it comes to demographic categories, okay, who cares that much? But you're increasingly having this done with. Um, you're having this done with predictive analytics in government, uh, in, in government contexts. Uh, one of the no notorious ones was the Wisconsin recidivism si system, where they uh, tried to predict which criminals would be more likely of committing further crimes if released from prison. And 
when they did a regression on the data, it turned out that uh, that African American uh, uh, convicts were being were being classified at a much higher recidivism rate than non-African Americans, even when other variables were controlled for. And so, uh, and so, so you it could would, be hidden variables in there. It's not r- well, right. That that yeah. you know, th- that bias had not been explicitly coded into the system. You know, right. from from a from the uh, coding point of view from the engineering point of view, there wasn't bias coded in the system. It was something that had emerged simply as a, as a product of uh, weights in the inputs that, well, one can argue over where the bias was, and we didn't know. It's just right. that these biases that, that are everywhere in the application of these categories then can come to the fore in unpredicted ways as these taxonomies are used and We and see exploited. this in recommender systems all the time, but I guess this, sometimes in recommender systems stakes are, stakes are lower, but in terms of you know, being released from prison, man, that's a, those are high stakes. Yeah, yeah. Those are <laughs> as high stakes possible. Um, and you see it, I think, in the case of, you know, for a long time, Google did not you know, really, really try to avoid manual manipulation of results. You know, that if the fur top response for search on Jews was some like hate site, the, the, you know, the, the impulse was, well, let's correct this algorithmically. Let's not hard code exception. But, I understand that impulse. When I first got into this, that's how I wanted to right. do it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that is exactly the, the sort of analytic impulse that I'm talking about. Yeah. Of course, yeah. You, want, you want to think that there's an algorithm that will fix it. You don't want to have a clutch where mm. you just say, okay. But... Unfortunately, that the world is always messier than the categories you're assigning to it, and yeah. so you're getting these you're getting these patholo- pat- you can call them pathological cases, special cases where you, yeah, increasingly people are throwing up their hands and saying, "Well, we need some sort of manual moderation or special casing," and I don't think that's considered to be a solved problem um, because I mean, if, a year or two ago. Um, there's a product called Conversation AI, which was claiming to do um, automated moderation of abusive comments. And this, I did some tests on it, and it seemed to be almost... I know it was machine learning based, because they were using Google's, I think, DeepMind technology, but yeah. um, it almost was like keyword based, because you could say things no, like... No, not good. People keep coming up with better and better ways to right. abuse each could, other. Yeah, you just uh, had to phrase it in... In, in a slightly nuanced way, yeah. and it would be fine. Moreover, you could say completely inoffensive, you know, or <laughs> things, and they would get class- classified as abusive. Literally, just mentioning Trump was enough to classify a comment wow. as abusive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so there's algorithm problems. I feel like there's a problem with having people manually tag things to it because then that gives them a lot of power, and then their biases clearly come into it. Right. So, so it, right. So, yeah, is crowdsourcing bias better than? A friend of mine likes to put it this way, is that, there's, that there are two competing arguments sometimes which are made by the same person. First is, we need algorithms to fix the bias of humans. And yeah. the other one is, we need humans to fix the bias of algorithms. <laughs> and that's an interesting way to put it. I think that's where, I, I, I think, uh, hi Adam if you're listening. Uh, I, think, I think, unfortunately, that's a very apt way to put it because uh, people, there is a lot of basically uh, saying that there's some pure unbiased mechanism that we can get to and there if there's if there's one upshot of it it's that no I, that the literal act of taxonomizing is going to carry some element of bias mm. and i think the be- you can tr- you can try to mitigate it but in my opinion, your, your best bet is to have multiple competing taxonomies, that any single taxonomy is inevitably going to result in some bias. And there are people who will say, well, okay, now we've got the acceptable bias, but some, that's, I don't think that's going to be a, a tenable solution in the long term. That, that reminds me, that's like why I'm always skeptical of people who are saying, well, one, you know, someone's going to build a general AI that's going to figure out the world. And I think, okay, maybe the algorithm could be unbelievably great, but it's the, it's the objective function. It's like, you know, what classifications are, is it trying to learn that is just going to be imperfect and have to continually be updated? Well, I feel like any, any, any AI like that is going to have to be a black box. 
yeah, that that this is another whole issue, which is the opac increasing opacity of AI, which is how did it get that? You can say, if it gets a result, you could say, no, 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 that's a bad result. And you can give it feedback to reinforce a different result. But you can never, but it's going to get increasingly more difficult to explain why you got that particular result. Right. So all your it, so it becomes sort of like um, the equivalent of a pinball machine, where you're basically you, you don't have complete control over where the ball goes. You can shunt it in one way or another and tilt it, but it's it's an increasing black box. And I I haven't. I mean, there are people who are claiming to address it, but I think that the between on the one hand the problem of opacity, and on the other hand the problem of reduction where you have an explanation for something but the explanation is clearly inadequate where it's like well I classified you as African-American because you liked Sun Ra and it's like well clearly that's 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 not sufficient so you so but Facebook's algorithm most likely would not be able to explain why it classified me as having African-American cultural affinity but that doesn't make it that is that better or worse than having yeah. it having done it for for an explicable but bad reason. Yeah, uh, I wanted to connect this with with a couple things that I worked on and I mentioned on in, in previous episodes, just so I, you can react. Um, because I've done a, a few classifications, particularly for for marketing. And so one that I well, one that I talked about a couple weeks ago was the age and gender models that I built for Foursquare, which are essentially we're going to predict your age and gender very imperfectly, just based on the places that you go in the mm -hmm. past, right? And so I built the gender model, and my my co-host, I think a little tongue-in-cheek, was like, how many genders does it predict, Max? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, of course it predicts two genders, but I thought about it, I'm like, well, that I wasn't making a statement about like the reality of human biology, it's just that's how the data came, and that's what marketers right. care about. And, that scene, and, and gender was actually really interesting. I felt the need to really, because I gave everyone at the company their gender score. Like mm -hmm. you're, and some people were wrong. It was only like 70, 80% accurate. And it, I found a lot of people who were wrong. It wasn't like, you know, I'm like, this is not, this has nothing to do with gender spectrum. Just walking into a place and having mm -hmm. your number change does not change how yeah. much of a man or a woman you are. Right. <laughs> right. And most of the people who's, who were wrong were just like, um, tended to be married people who uh, go to places with their spouse, you know? And so uh, it, it, it and the more interesting one, I think, was like the age model, or it was interesting in a different way, in that marketers really cared about how the age buckets were defined, and right. the way we had done it yeah. was not good, so we had to change what our age buckets were to fit what the marketers wanted. It's funny, well, I think I, I, think I talk about this in the book, how it, it, somehow I slipped from Generation Y to Generation X because it's been redefined, redefined. over the years. Where, yeah. how, where is it now? I don't even know. I, I, uh, it used to be that Generation X, Generation X, I think, originally cut off at something like 1965, but it's oh, been wow. pushed to like 1980 or something. Yeah, okay. So, you know, it, th these things evolve, and they evolve in very um, unpredictable ways. And I don't know, I don't think there's some Illuminati deciding what they are. They just sort of slide because... Um, at, at some point, some category, it, the cutoff seems to be more useful if it's placed here versus there. Um, the one that really, that, that you mentioned that really got me thinking was, was the mental illness one where I'm like, okay, you know, in, in one, you know, they, they come out with like a new taxonomy and all of a sudden this thing isn't a mental illness and this thing is, and it's like, oh my God, like what, I, I could be misprescribed and I, I don't, you know, I don't know how much to trust what like a doctor is saying and what a and I'm always like worried like oh my god what are they using how is yeah. it changing so let, let me I, I can actually actually I can speak to this a little in more detail which is that the DSM has a uh, what's called a criterial appro approach to diagnosing mental illness which is they say like if you've got five of the following eleven symptoms then you class then you are classified as say depressed or anxious. Or uh, or alcoholic or borderline or something like that, and if you don't have five of them, then you aren't. But yeah, you know, clearly that's an approximation, and it's it, yeah. it, it you know, it's a it's what uh, I think one psychiatrist calls a diagnostic construct. It, 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 it there's there's no real ba basis for saying you know 
just because you have five rather than four of these symptoms, that means your brain chemistry is different right. than someone who only has four of them. It, it's an approximation, but these categories have become, have gotten so heavily into play that, that you know, an insurance company sees you, literally sees you as a different sort of person because you had that such and such a diagnosis placed on your form. Whereas yeah. if you had had those sorts of symptoms but not had, I don't know, chills or whatever, then you wouldn't have that diagnosis. You'd have a different diagnosis. And I've spoken to a psychiatrist who's, I've spoken to several psychiatrists, in fact, who say, look, yes, of course, of course it's not. Um, uh, of course these things aren't mapping onto neurochemistry. And they say, and I said, well, you know, how do you know whether someone is this versus that? And they say, look, I say, you know, we try different, we try different treatment plans. If they respond to a treatment for, uh, for a particular uh, mental illness, that's the best indicator. But of course, you know, that's, that's almost a reverse engineering it because right. you're saying, so you're saying, how did you figure it out? Yeah. Whereas, but, and it's, and it has nothing, very little to do with, um, with the behavioral and the behavioral criteria. And, it, and I think the upshot is I say that it's become very entangled with the pharmaceutical industry because they're, in addition to their being interested in marketing medications based on these diagnoses and perhaps encouraging certain diagnoses in order to market medications, the results of the medication prescriptions also affect uh, what diagnoses are made of people in the first place. And sometimes this can cause trouble. And in the book, I talk about the case of childhood bipolar, which is generally considered not to be a thing anymore. Um, but research was skewed in favor of uh, you know, reclassifying kids that had uh, uh, attention deficit type disorders as as being bipolar, hmm. and it turned out that, that was the, the old the old one was bipolar. Bipolar became an attention deficit. Or no, it, no, they no. were trying to glump, They were trying to reclassify childhood ADHD uh, disorders as bipolar. Oh, oh, I see. As as a type of bipolar or as, as a type of bipolar. It was and it was called childhood bipolar that we've messed up all this time these kids that we were classifying as ADHD are actually bipolar huh. and therefore should be treated with different medications um, and, and that shows you just you know how 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 absolutely contingent some of these classifications are and you know this is a lot more serious than than Myers-Briggs these are supposed to be you know legitimate categories yeah, I'd, I'd like to think there's a learning process and it's somehow getting better um, we need machine learning for that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I think that's the thing, is that in some ways, machine learning may offer some help here because you could actually incorporate feedback in a, in a, um, uh, in a more regularized and standardized way. But of course, that has its own pitfalls as well because you need the pit... Because even in the process yeah. of classifying the feedback, you may be reinforcing the very biases that were in the classification to begin with. Right. That was what I was told once. And someone was like, well, we're going to get rid of... Um, someone was telling me they were pitched. You know, oh, we're going to get rid of bias in hiring by building a machine learning model based off of who we hired. And I was like, no, you're not, you're just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, right. The bias like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, yeah. Uh, We're going to hire based on exactly the patterns we've been hiring on, right, exactly. so therefore there won't be any more bias. Yeah. Like, There's a small chance they could smooth something out. Yeah, so, yeah. But like, so, so they could get something there, but like... Well, apparently that, part, no. Amazon did that. Yeah. There was a story about Amazon last year trying to deploy a model like that, and of course it immediately started rejecting female applicants. Yeah, of course. At, at, um, so it's not good. At a high rate. Yeah, and I think it's that sort of circular dependency where it's like, okay, well, we need the evidence to train the model, and the model has to fix the bias that's in the evidence we trained it on. And it's like, it's, that's a circular dependency there. And um, that is the sort of um, problem that I think actually does lend itself to the more, I guess, humanities-based, subjective, heuristic approach that I discuss in the book and where I feel that, um, I guess, more creative thinking may have something to offer in terms of, not in terms of, okay, let's fix this model so that we can eliminate bias because some a lot of the time you're just moving the bias around, but in what ways can we be creative in mitigating the bias by, yeah. by changing what sort of, uh, what, what sort of 
taxonomies we're using. And I, th I think that there you have room for a bit more squishy thinking. Cool. The, the other taxonomy that we've mentioned on the show, just so that I have a complete... Uh, you taxonomy know, a complete, of taxonomies. Uh, yes, just a complete accounting of what we, we talked about before was way back in episode three, I talked about... I talked to Stephanie Yang about the Foursquare recommender system and how it's a it's a it's a triple selection. You can either like a place, you know, dislike a place, or say it's okay. That's like our meh. And there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of controversy over the meh because we found it was actually more of a dislike. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it was like a polite person's dislike. Um, but it helped us get more data, and it actually helped with like. Uh, machine learning sentiment on the words so it was real good but I, I've seen like you know a lot of people do recommender systems say if you have too many options it confuses people they don't really yep well I think I say it at the fair at, yeah. the, at the end of the book one of the laws I say is that simpler classifications tend to defeat uh, more complex classifications and you yeah. see it on Netflix too where they went from the five star system to literally yeah you know, thumbs up or, or thumbs down. Yeah, but I, I think our experience was going from the two to the three at least helped us in certain ways. Um, so maybe because without that third flavor in there, it was hard for people to, um, you know, people were like, well, I don't want to ruin this person's business. I don't want to, mm. uh, it was hard for people to give that kind of feedback. And also there are such things as mixed reviews. So maybe there's like some kind of a, Obviously, one would be too little. Um, I've even said this, I was even talking earlier today, how like uh, a recommender system where you only have positive feedback is there are things you can do, but it's it's kind of hard. Um, and so, I don't know, it's three seem to be maybe better than two, but after that, maybe mm. downhill. I don't know, it depends on the situation. But um, Okay, finally, um, I wanted to, uh, or anything more to, to say on the classifications because we're going to move on. Um, I, I mean, it's a fascinating topic, obviously. I could go on for a lot. I would say um, happy to discuss with anyone who's, uh, who'd like to know more. The book covers it in great detail, but yeah. I, I probably people... Uh, that's probably might be enough classification for most people. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, and then we talk about it on the show, too. Okay, finally, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about something at the beginning of the book because this was, this was really cool. I was with MSN Messenger... Yeah. And I think I was in, what year was that? I think I was in college back then. It was, was 90, or 90, no. 99, oh, wow. okay, so, I guess. Okay, so I was 90, in high 90, Do I, 99? Okay, yeah, 99. Okay, so that was, that was even earlier. Um, so we had all these messenger apps. Uh, you wanted to get it working with AOL. Did it, was it called AOL Instant Messenger back yes. then? Or was it just AOL? Or did AOL people... Instant Messenger, AIM for short. Okay, because yeah. I remember I didn't hear, I didn't know about AIM until like, 2003, I started really? hearing people call it. I, maybe really? I'm off a little bit on the year. I don't know. Really? Because they, they were I the biggest it. ones. There was oh, no, 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 no. I used it. I used it since like the early 90s, but or mid 90s, not really. But like, I didn't call it AIM. Oh, did you use it through AOL dial up? Yes. That's the reason. Yes. Because basically, there was the standalone client, which was AIM, and then yeah. there was. If you used AOL, it was just integrated into the larger AOL client, so it didn't show up as AIM. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't think. Yeah, I don't think I had. I think we had dial-up almost all the way until maybe two thousand two, two thousand. I don't know, somewhere around there. Um, but yeah, it was, um, which is hard to believe. Um, so anyway, you were tasked with getting my MSN Messenger from Microsoft to work with AIM. Well, well, what happened? It was. A lark actually because we were we were waiting for uh, we were waiting for the server to be done because Microsoft had purchased Hotmail and was integrating with Hotmail uh, and so that took that basically there was an unexpected delay as far as as far as okay can we get the server working with with with, with our client and there had been and so on a lark, I was like, "Hey, look, this client—this I made—I made it so our client talks to both servers at the same time. It can talk to AOL and uh, and ours. Look, it's like it's 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 like email now. You don't have to have two so clients." And I was like, "They'll never release this," but yeah. they did. <laughs> so this is a side project. Well, yeah, yeah, to some extent, yeah, yeah. That that that. I, 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 the initial version did not take that long because the uh, 
the code had, had already existed. Some, some of the code had already existed. So for, for just talking, people, other people had already, you know, had, had already, had already derived the AOL's pro protocol for their instant messenger. So I like sort so of- Derived as in, they, it's not like, it's not like, like they just, published it. They just no, no, they just did network traces. You yeah. know, they were looking okay. at it and saying, okay, this is, this is how it works. Um, so, so you did not have their permission to interoperate with them, which someone using the app. Well, I think we didn't <laughs> think we needed. I think yeah. we didn't think we needed it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, there were other third-party clients, right. like you, you Tri thought it was Trillium. Like I think was yeah. one of them. Oh, and AOL and AOL wasn't wasn't blocking. Wasn't didn't block at least some of them. Okay. Um, now, obviously, when Microsoft does it, it's a bit more of a problem. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, so yeah. So the client actually went out being able to talk to AOL, and yeah, AOL wasn't so thrilled about that. Yeah. So you, I mean, I feel like they almost they should have been, but. <laughs> they should should have been not thrilled, thrilled about thrilled thrilled about. I mean, like they they should have been happy that, uh, you know. Well, well, I don't know. They had their client had ads. Their client. Oh, you know, okay. So, and at one yeah. point, they actually they tried to detect whether which client it was. I feel like nowadays everyone just wants people on their platforms, so it's like. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, I think that's the thing is that. Everything was so much more proprietary then, and that applied to yeah. Microsoft as well. Microsoft wanted everything to be on Windows, and that was why they sort of resisted moving anything onto yeah. the internet. So yeah. that was how that was how people were thinking then. AOL also had the largest network, so they were right. they were you know, my, MSN was MSN Messenger was a upstart. So that, yeah. this was our way of saying, well, you know, log on. You can you can use both services now. Uh, yeah. You can talk to your Hotmail friends and to your uh, AOL friends with a single client. Yeah. Which, from the email perspective, of course, you just want one client. But, that makes uh, sense. But uh, but but then AOL started messing with you. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> they started detecting. They were able to identify our client versus their client and disconnect our client with a message saying, "Please use the AOL client. Click mm -hmm. here." And so what would happen is I would try to figure out the differences between the two clients, change our client to match it as best I could and send out a client update. So what was the, what was the user experience at this point? Was it like, oh, it's not working today. Oh, now it's working. Yeah, what, yeah fortunately, like, even on dial-up, the client size was really small. So it was actually yeah. possible to ship out updates pretty quickly uh so right. there, there was a period where it was updating like literally every day or two did you ever uh, think like like this is crazy that we're doing this yes yes uh every day i i i mean in some ways it was sort of cool because like i can't yeah. believe that microsoft is doing this it seemed like yeah. something that a small company would do right and i couldn't believe that it was a small team as well so that was it was uh it was very thrilling and in some ways yeah, nothing else at Microsoft sort of compared to that. So, uh, what if? Well, if you were the AOL engineer on the other end, what what would you have done to kind of thwart you? Uh, well, I wouldn't have done what they actually ended up doing, which was very clever. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure if I should keep that a secret or not. But okay. they, should I, or should I give it away? Uh, no, no, you could just say it was something very clever. Did you guys end up incredibly um, clever? You, you guys end up getting around it, or nope. But yeah. but that was after like many tries. Yeah. Well, yeah. Th that was, so so at first they, you know, they just picked up on whatever differences they could find. But at a certain point, we were matching the AOL client really really closely. I was even yeah. downloading all their ads and just throwing all throwing them away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I'm sure they didn't like that. What What if you said, well, I'll, I'll uh, we'll, we'll show your ads, then maybe they wouldn't have. I don't think, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I wasn't on the business end of yeah. that. Um, it was, was so early. Was like, well, I was like, it was, it was like yeah. well, but it's going to take, I'm not going to write the UI code to display right. these ads. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just get the wire yeah. to match. If they want me to do anything, like if they want me to do anything else, you can like put it on my work item list, but I'm doing the yeah. minimum necessary to just yeah. keep it working. But I, I feel uh, like it's kind of crazy. There's a battle which there's someone's on the other end trying to stop you to... I know. I feel like there was even like encoded messages like saying hi in the 
in the AOL protocol to us. Ooh, like, like it was like creepy. secret messages. Uh, I thought it was pretty. That's cool though. I thought it was cute. Yeah. It was like, okay, like we're having this like secret war that like nobody yeah. understands. Wow. Uh, but eventually, but at a certain point things started working for a while and it was like, yeah. okay. How long were they working for? Oh, like a week or so. And it was like, oh, okay. have, have we won? Yeah. And then they pulled their ace in the hole. And I won't tell you what it was. The book gets into it. But, um, you know, had I been a little more, I was, I, mean, I was a kid at this point. I was really fresh out of college. Had I been older, I, I, I could have gone, I, I could have gone around it. But mm. uh, at the time, it definitely would have taken more work to get around. And I guess the consensus was, you know, they'd gotten the PR win out of it. So yeah, you know, let's move on. There's some other funny stuff, fishy stuff that goes on too. Yeah, sure. The, the end of the story is pretty funny, but uh, AOL pulled something, yeah, yeah, a bit below the belt, but very, very clever. Yeah, all right. I, I just wanted people to get a taste of this because this is a really interesting uh, a part of the book. Um, so as we end, do you have any final closing thoughts? And also, please let people know where they can find out more. Uh, yeah, um, closing thoughts, I guess, is that um, I hope, you know, I, the book in some ways is a love letter to the aspects of software engineering and computer science that I, that, that mean a lot to me and, and how in some ways they're oddly getting buried because of the commercialization and ubiquity of computers today and why I think that both these sort of fundamentals of computer science should be more generally known and why they are valuable despite, you know, I guess the sentiment in the last year towards uh, the internet has turned rather hostile, it seems. Sure. And uh, I can understand that. And But if we're to have any hope of sort of fixing the uglier things, um, I think there needs to be a lot more technical understanding. At the same time, I do think the technical side of things could benefit from a more, I don't know, I don't know if holistic is, is the way to put it, but um, could, could, it could benefit from a lot more generalized knowledge uh, about, um, uh, about sort of how classifications work, how taxonomies work. Yeah. Um, and to find out more, uh, feel free to find me. My website is uh, David Auerbach. It's uh, and that's my name, David Auer, B A, A, David A U E R B A dot C H. Uh, I don't ah. live in Switzerland, but you know that's that's how it works. Okay. This will um, also all be linked on localmaxradio.com slash fifty five. So. And, that has my contact information. I'm yeah. on Twitter, less so than I used to be because, uh, well, partly for those reasons that everybody thinks that the uh, internet is terrible these days, but I am at Auerbach Keller. Uh, so my name, A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H-K-E-L-L-E-R. Uh, that's a reference to Goethe's Faust. Uh, people have wondered what Keller has to do with anything. It's a reference to, the, uh, to Leipzig's uh, Auerbach Cellar restaurant. <laughs> so, and I don't get the chance to say that to people too often, but that's that's what it means. That's what it means, and it's too. And I figure it's too late to change it now. But uh, always love to hear from readers. Um, I, it's really, it's it's nice to know that people have been reading this and appreciating it. You know, uh, I I got a the, the New York Times was was. The, the reviewer was very complimentary to the book. He also said, the book doesn't wear its learning lightly, and I wasn't sure whether that was a compliment or doesn't not. It doesn't wear but... its learning lightly. I'm not sure <laughs> what that means. Yeah, I, I think it was that... I, Yeah, I, I, I mean, it seemed like... I don't know. But... Um, we get some feedback on that. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I, I, I guess... The, I, I think what it meant is that I, I sort of, like, uh, talk about a lot of miscellaneous stuff uh, and, and rather than... Uh, rather than sticking to my own experience, but I guess that's because I, get, uh, I wasn't sure that my own life was all that interesting, so I tried to balance my own anecdotes with uh, the bigger picture, because the bigger picture is interesting. Right, right, and, and that's what I got out of it. Uh, there, was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of cool uh, anecdotes and, um, 
and, and insights into software development, and I appreciate that uh, as I read the book. So, David. And I appreciate you reading it. Uh, I really do mean that, Max. I appreciate every person. Nobody every reads anymore, person. so yes. God knows. I, I, uh, it, it means a lot to me. Well, with that, David, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Max. All right. One thing that I've been thinking about since this talk with David is about the idea that some of these algorithms, particularly these machine learning algorithms, are getting less and less explainable over time, is that, you know, one day we'll have kind of a, uh, well, not one day, I, I guess we do it to some extent now, but there'll be huge research projects to just understand how to affect the outcomes of these systems or these these AI kind of um, prediction systems. So let me give you an example. Like there are, you know, teams of people who work to predict the weather, right? Um, and they don't always get it right. But, you know, they have some a set of methods. Maybe there'll also be a set of methods to predict, hey, what's the AI going to do today? I don't know. Um, so that... Um, that's an interesting idea I've been kicking around. I don't know. What do you think about that? Localmaxradio at gmail.com if you want to chime in. I answer everyone's email. Coming up next week, I think I am going to do a solo episode next week because I haven't done a solo episode since Paradox, which was one of my favorite episodes, episodes 39. I'm thinking of covering either mathematical induction or uh, – learning by analogy, you know, connected to machine learning by analogy. Both of those are kind of things that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. Who knows? Maybe both. Uh, we'll see. Another one with Aaron is coming up soon, and we're going to talk about a bunch of articles that came out about the term data scientist recently and whether there's a saturation of people calling themselves that in the field. So look out for that one. And also, I might get to interview podcaster Mark Weiss, who on his show, Using Reflection, interviews software engineers and gets insights into the field and into life. And I'll be on his show as well soon. We actually recorded it um, many months ago, but um, I think it's finally going to go up very uh, imminently. And I'm really excited for how 2019 is shaping up for the local maximum, even as I make this job transition. I have a lot of great uh, guests in the pipeline, so make sure to subscribe and you'll be notified of these upcoming shows. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power. And she said, I don't care what you say, you're going to say.